Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead your people like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth by your spirit and illuminate your word so that we might see Jesus. Look down from heaven and see, have regard for us as the branches of your son, the true vine, the stock that your right hand has planted. Give us life so that we may call upon your name and let your face shine on us in Christ so that we may be saved. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me to the book of Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. We're going to read the first five verses together of Micah chapter 4. Micah is toward the end of the Old Testament between the books of Jonah and Nahum. So Micah chapter 4, we're going to begin our reading at verse 1 and read through verse 5. And let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for, nation, for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, well, if you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series through the book of Micah, and we've come to chapter 4. Um, and one of the things we've seen as we've gone through the book of Micah is that it's been a book of judgments, uh, judgments against the, the failure that Israel has become, judgments against them for the ways in which they've failed to live according to God's law. It, it's been heavy with the judgment that's falling and coming upon Israel, um, and in the end of chapter 3 was sort of the smoking ruin that Zion had become. Um, and as we've gone on, we've seen little flickers of hope, um, little glimpses of glorious, good futures. Um, but this chapter 4 is when it, it shines forth in brightness. It's not a glimmer of hope. It's like a bright, sun-shining day that arises on the people of God, as Micah sees um, beyond the near future to a latter future. Uh, to a glorious future for not just the people of God, but even for the whole world. Um, a vision of what will be in the latter days. Um, it's a reminder to us, as many commentators pointed out in thinking about these verses, that judgment does not have the last word. The last picture that's left to God's people is not Zion as a smoking ruin, as a heap of rubble, rubble plowed under by the just judgment of God. Judgment doesn't have the last word. Salvation has the last word. 
Zion doesn't end in ruins, it ends in exaltation. It ends lifted up and glorious in the world. Um, Judgment has a purpose in God's divine plan, but it's not the last word for his people. That's a glorious reminder that we have, that judgment does not get the last word. The final picture is of glory. The final picture of it is of hope and salvation. And how does that come to God's people? Um, it comes to God's people by the grace of their God. It's a gracious salvation that God works. Um, all the pictures of judgment came upon them for what they'd done. The glory that's pronounced over them in chapter 4 comes not from what they've done, but from the gracious God they have. We're reminded that we have a God who keeps covenant. Um, and who by his glory will restore his people and restore his kingdom. Um, We see beautifully in this passage that by God's grace, a future day is coming when exaltation will replace destruction, where order will replace disorder, and where faithfulness will replace infidelity. And that's what we're going to talk about in these verses. The time that's coming when exaltation will replace Destruction, when order will replace disorder, and when faithfulness will replace infidelity. Micah sees a day coming when exaltation will replace destruction, when a great reversal is going to come on what has happened. Uh, Particularly a reversal of the the terrors of the end of chapter 3. When all the institutions of Jerusalem have failed, there's no justice, there's no truth, there's no righteousness, and God plows the whole thing under. Here, it's not plowed under, it's lifted high. Um, It's as if Zion grows to be the highest mountain there is in the world, that it's exalted over all other high places. Um, A new beginning, um, that the old is finished, the new is being lifted up. Um, A great and glorious day when Zion is higher than any other mountain. The beginning of a kingdom of worldwide justice, of righteousness, of peace, of prosperity. Couldn't be a different picture in chapter 4, verse 1, than what we see in chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, The mountain of the house of the Lord is lifted up on high, raised higher than any other mountain on earth. What does this mean, boys and girls? Is is Mount Zion all of a sudden going to be taller than Mount Everest Uh, to go to God's house? Are we going to have to hike with equipment and oxygen to get that high? Um, Is literally the mountain going to grow? Well, no, this this is a poetic picture, isn't it? It's poetic language to picture God being higher than the highest other place in the world. Um, Why was pagan worship conducted on high places? Because you believed that got you closer to the gods. That that was the place where heaven had contact with earth. That you had a place like Mount Olympus, right? Where the the gods dwell on the top of the mountain and you go up the mountain to have a contact with them and contact with heaven. And so when God says his mountain will be lifted higher than any other mountain in the world, what is he saying? You might have your little high places, But there's no place as high as his mountain. And by connection, there's no God greater than our God. And that it's it's a clear vision to the whole world. This is the highest of high places. This is the greatest of all gods. This is the God who's above every God. 
And that glorious reality will cause people, Micah says, to flow to that God. Um, who, who will come streaming to learn about him, to know about him, and to learn his ways. We see that Micah sees this future in which this great mountain will draw in the whole world. Everyone will come and want to be a part of what is going on on this mountain. It's, it's a picture like a pilgrimage. We know that Israel had to do those pilgrimages, right? Every, every year they would have to go three times, come up to Zion. Well, Micah sees a day when the whole world will come in pilgrimage to Zion. The whole world will come to worship the Lord. All peoples and all nations will come flowing to God. And why do they come? What are they there for? Well, verse 2 tells us beautifully, they'll come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Let us go, let us come up. Notice that no one is compelling them to go. Right? No one's gone out and, and brought them slaves to Zion. But there was prophecy that they'd be carried away to slavery. No one's carrying anybody enslaved to Zion. Everyone has come moved by an inner compulsion, the compulsion that causes them to look to people next to them and say, let us go, come with me, let's go up. Right? It's, that, it's that inner compulsion that comes from the Lord and his spirit that makes us desire to do the things that are beneficial, that the whole world is looking at each other and saying, go, let's go, let's find this God. Let's learn about him. Let's go and have him teach us his ways. That's what the people come for. That's what they want to learn. They want to learn the way of the Lord from him. Teach us your ways, O Lord, is what they'll say. They want to know who he is and what he's done. Um, that, that's what the, the glory of the Old Testament does for people. It shows what kind of God we have. The God who made all things, and when all things plunged themselves into ruin, a God who came to rescue what was ruined. A God who came to make covenant with a people, and who keeps covenant forever. And that when his people are enslaved and they call out to him, he's the God who hears and comes and rescues them, who sees them through the wilderness, who brings them into rest. And even when they break covenant with him and he causes them to go into exile for a time, it's his covenant promise that says, wherever you're scattered, be it to the ends of the earth, there I'll find you and bring you back to myself. This is the kind of God they've come to learn about that they might know what kind of God we serve, that they might listen to the God who's presented in his word and learn about his ways and walk in them. It's a beautiful expression. Let's learn about his ways, that he may teach us his ways, that we might walk in his paths. Not just that we would learn about him, but learning about his ways would have the impact in our lives that it's meant to have. That we respond to the gospel. That we respond to the word of God. That we learn who he is and say, that's the kind of God I want to serve. That's the kind of God I need to save me. That's the kind of God I want to walk with all my days. 
And he'll teach us his ways and we'll learn his paths and he'll, we'll walk with him. It's a glorious picture. And it's a glorious picture of how God's word works, right? He's lifted up high. He draws people to himself. And then what do those people who've been drawn to him do? Then they go forth. They go forth into the world. There's not just a drawing in we see in this passage, right? There's also a sending forth that God's word goes out. Why do the people stream in? Why do they flow into Zion? Because his word has flowed out to the world. His word has gone out. We see that at the end of verse 2. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Right, that, that law, that word of God that talks all about his redeeming acts and all about his righteous requirements. The law and the gospel. So we would know what kind of God we have, what he expects of us and how to live a life that's pleasing in his sight. And Micah sees this glorious day when that will be true of the whole world. There won't be anyone who does not desire to come to Zion to be taught of the Lord and to go out with his word, walking in his ways. Where all of that desolation, all of that destruction has been replaced by the exaltation of God and his word and his people. And as a result of that exaltation that replaces destruction, what happens in the world? Well, the disorder that's been seen everywhere is replaced by order. Right? That's, that's the next glorious thing we see flowing out of this day that Micah sees in the future, that order will replace disorder. There's going to be a universal impact of God's exaltation of his kingdom in the world. Um, and what's first going to happen? Well, God's justice is going to be done in all the earth. God's justice is going to be done in all the earth. Remember the, the big failure in chapter 3. What was the failure? That God had established a system of justice where the oppressed who had no power to fend for themselves could go to the leaders of the, of the, of the city, could go to Jerusalem and say, I don't have power, you do. I'm oppressed and I can't do anything about it. You need to help me. I'm crying out to you as the ones who have the power and the authority to help. And those, those systems of justice God had put in place so that the oppressor could be helped. So the oppression could be relieved. So the oppressor could be put down. But what was the terrible reality of chapter 3? Those systems had failed. The justice system could be bought. It became complicit with the oppressors and would not help the oppressed. It was a failed justice system. But Micah sees a day coming when it's not a failed justice system. And why? Because now God is dispensing justice. God is seeing that justice is done. And God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't care how much money you have. God doesn't care how important you are. God is concerned for the right. And he will decide with righteousness. He will decide with justice. Right? He will put down the oppressor. He will lift up the oppressed. Um, he will be a God of justice. 
And, and Micah, Micah rejoices that there's a day coming when it doesn't matter how strong the nation is, God will work justice. It doesn't matter how far away you are, you're not outside of his reach. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for nations far away. It doesn't matter how strong the people are, it doesn't matter how far away they are, they're within his reach, within his grasp to work justice. And when justice comes, war becomes obsolete. Right? Everybody recognizes that there's no need for war anymore. Um, You can take your swords and your spears, your implements of war, and turn them into something productive. Because wars become obsolete. It's a picture of war being abandoned. You know, there are places in the Bible where God breaks the spears. God breaks the swords. God is doing the breaking. Here, the picture is different. It's as if the whole world realizes, what do we need these things for anymore? There's justice now in the world. Right? When justice is, is reigning in the world, what need is there for war anymore? There's no more unjust people who can rise up and persecute the nations. You know, there's no more Hitlers that are allowed to arise and work terrible things. Why? Because there's a God in heaven who puts them down. There's no more injustice anymore, so there's no more war. It's just abandoned. Let's turn these things into something useful. Um, war is abandoned They beat their swords into plowshares. They don't need spears and swords anymore. They don't go to war anymore. No one lifts up swords against anyone else. And in fact, they forget how to wage war. Isn't that a glorious picture? They forget how. Nobody learns how anymore. But there's no more need for standing armies that are constantly being trained for war. There's no more need for a West Point or a Naval Academy. Because nobody needs to learn war anymore. There's no need for it. It's abandoned and finally forgotten. Because peace has come. Um, It's a a beautiful picture of peace that God gives us in this, in verse 4. There's no more war, but what, what happens instead They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Who's the they in that sentence? It's the same as been going on. It's all people. This will be the universal experience. Everybody will live in peace. And it's a prosperous peace. That's the picture that God is giving here. Maybe maybe that's not your life goal. You know, you don't sit around thinking, you know, if I could just have fig trees to sit under, I'd be a happy camper. Uh, Maybe that's not what you aspire to. But this is an Old Testament picture of a prosperous peace. Vines and fig trees. Um, Grapes and figs were the most expensive of the fruits in the promised land. That's why they stand so often as a symbol of God's blessing. Uh, They were valuable fruit. They were a major source of income to people who had them. And so when God says you're, you're rich in grapes and figs, it's a way of saying you're, you're, you're blessed, you're prosperous, you're not in need of anything. Everyone has their own blessed inheritance is what God is, is saying here. 
Everybody is able to sit under the blessings of their peace and their prosperity and know it will never come to an end. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful picture? You're, you're sitting there in the, in the perfection of that day and there's nothing to make you afraid. It's interesting, in, in, in 1 Kings, this is the picture of Solomon's reign. The people sat under their fig trees and under their vine trees and they were in safety as long as Solomon reigned. It was a picture of safety, but it was not a lasting picture. This is a lasting picture. Why? Because there's no one left to make anyone afraid. There's no one left to terrify. There's no one to interrupt. There's no one to reverse the enjoyment of the peace and the prosperity that God has given his people. That was summarized well, I think, by one commentator, what this picture is in verse 4. It's an ideal that spells freedom. Freedom from hunger and oppression. The free right to one's own property, to be one's own master. The sturdy farmer relaxing at noon under the cool shade of his fruit trees and quietly surveying his own small holding. Maintained by honest toll, honest toil, it epitomizes a beautiful ideal of human fulfillment that's been so often lacked and longed for. The reinforcing phrase, with none to make afraid, expresses what is already implied, namely the freedom from fear which cramps the development of life and personality. Could such hopes as these ever come true, the hearers of this prophecy must have mused. Will this ever come to be? Right, it's a beautiful picture. But will that, ever, will that picture ever be me? Will I ever be sitting under the fig tree? Will I ever be there relaxing under the vine with enough to enjoy, the freedom to enjoy it, and none to make me afraid? Is that just one of those unattainable ideals that we sketch for ourselves? The world might be tempted to say that. This is a pie-in-the-sky stuff that will never come true. You Christians just kid yourselves that there's some kind of future that looks like this. Well, Micah's not painting a pie-in-the-sky picture. He's painting a certain reality that will one day be. And how do we know that this is absolutely guaranteed to come true? Because of what verse 4 says at the end. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. When he speaks, that decides it. When he speaks, that ends it. And as if to reinforce that point, Micah uses a title of the Lord here that he doesn't use anywhere else. This is the Lord of hosts who's speaking. The Lord is that covenant name. Boys and girls, whenever you see the Lord in capital letters, that's important. Because it's the special name that God makes himself known to us by. And it's a name that reminds us that we have a God who's committed to us in covenant and is faithful to the commitments that he makes. Whenever we see that word, the Lord, it's a reminder of the covenant promises he's made to his people. The Lord has spoken this. And not just the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Right, where we sing in a mighty fortress is our God. Lord Sabaoth, his name. 
That's the name of might and power. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of armies. That's the sign that he's got the power to do whatever he says. And when his mouth has said, this will surely be, there's no reason for God's people to doubt that this will surely be. There is a day coming when we will enjoy this kind of prosperous peace. When the picture of God's people kicking back in safety underneath the enjoyment of the protection he's provided will come to pass. The glory will come. It's sure to come because he's spoken it. That decides it. So God's people say, okay, now that it's going to be true, when? Because that sounds great. And if it's coming, pastor, when is it coming? I'll tell you exactly when it's coming. Because verse 1 tells us exactly when it's coming. It's coming in the latter days. Now, that's disappointing, isn't it? You thought, you thought there's maybe a real answer coming. Um, it's coming in the latter days. But that's, that should be an encouragement to God's people as well. Um, because of where we are. Right? The, the prophets used to talk about the latter days, and it was, a, it was a future day that was in many ways uncertain to them. They saw it as a turning point in history. Right? Something radical is going to be reversed. When a, when a heap of ruins gets lifted up as high as the heavens, when the present situation becomes completely reversed, something has happened in history. There's been some major turning point, some seismic activity in the history of the world that has changed everything. And the prophets would, all, would often talk about that. And the New Testament talks about that. And when the New Testament talks about the latter days in connection with the glorious promises of God, they're always referring to the same thing. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the outpouring of his spirit at Pentecost. That's what lets us know that the latter days have come. That's the event that's going to change the world. That's the event towards which all history was pushing and from which all history flows out after it comes. The glorious advent of the Son of God come into the world to save sinners and to pour out His Spirit as the richest of His gifts upon His people. That's when the latter days come. And so that's the glory of living as we live now. Because we know that the latter days have come. They might still be saying, then where's my fig tree? Where's my vine? Maybe you're not saying it, but I'm saying it. Well, there's levels of fulfillment. That's what the prophets learned. That all of these things don't happen at once. Um, maybe, maybe you've heard the image before of, of prophecies sometimes are like looking at a mountain range far away. And when you're far away from a mountain range, you look, it looks like one line of mountains, right? You see one, one outline on the horizon. But as you move closer, you see there are foothills in front of the big mountains. You see that there's more depth, there's more thickness to the promise, and that's what happens in prophecy. There was an initial fulfillment, a beginning fulfillment of this prophecy when God's people were called back from exile. They began to see the beginning of this restoration, when a new temple was built on the old mountain, not as glorious as the former house, but a new house, the promise that God was once again in the midst of his people, a beginning of a fulfillment. 
And then we see a victorious fulfillment when Christ comes into the world. And the true temple comes. And the true temple is destroyed on the cross, but raised again on the third day. When the true temple ascends into glory and takes his seat at the right hand of his Father and pours out the riches of his kingly gifts on the people as promised Holy Spirit, who comes to tabernacle with his people wherever they are. Right? We see the glorious beginning of the fulfillment, even in the Old Testament, the victorious fulfillment in the work of Christ. And we know that there's a consummate fulfillment coming when the Lord returns in glory to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new. Right? That's when this will be fully fulfilled. That's when there will be consummate fulfillment when the Lord returns again in glory. And so we can be comforted to know that we are living in these last days. We're living in these latter days. We've seen the victorious fulfillment in the triumph of the Lamb. And we know that He's coming again in glory soon to judge the living and the dead. And so then what does this call for from God's people as we're living in this in-between time? As we are not yet enjoying the fullness of the exaltation, we're not yet enjoying the fullness of the order that's coming. What kind of people are we to be? Well, we're to respond as the kind of people who replace infidelity with faithfulness. That's what Micah sees also at the end of this chapter. A people who will replace unfaithfulness with faithfulness. Where faithfulness will replace infidelity. That's the kind of people we are to be. Because we see that this fulfillment is already beginning to happen. Right? Jesus has been lifted up. And people are flowing to him. That, that was gloriously spoken of by the Apostle John in John chapter 12. When, when the nations come to Jesus. It doesn't seem maybe like a momentous moment as we read it in John 12, but it is. What do we read in John 12, beginning at verse 20? Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Right? Here's a momentous moment. What is happening here? The nations are flowing to Zion. The Greeks are coming and saying, show us Jesus. We would see Jesus. We would learn from his ways that we might walk in his paths. And Jesus notices this as the moment for his glorification. And he says at the end of, of this passage, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Right? They're, they're flowing to Zion. And when he, when he triumphs by his cross, when he's lifted up, and then he dies and rises again on the third day, he sends his disciples out to do what? Take the word from Zion to the ends of the earth. Right? It's happening. It's being fulfilled. He's ruling on his throne right now, promising a future of perfect justice, peace, and freedom. And until he comes again, what kind of people are we to be? 
We're to be faithful to him. We're to replace that former infidelity that we've seen throughout the book of Micah with faithfulness. That's a beautiful thing we see at the end of our passage. Um, We read in verse 5, For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of our Lord, the Lord our God, forever and ever. Another way to translate this, maybe a better way would be to say, even if all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, we, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Even if they follow after other gods in this in-between time, we will not. We will stand united following the Lord our God. That's such a radical change from what we saw in chapter 3. Where they took up the name of the Lord on their lips and professed that God was with them, but they profaned his covenant at the same time. Remember how the the wickedness reigned in in chapter 3, 9 through 12. They were all about wickedness, and then they said, but the Lord is in our midst. Surely we won't be moved. Right? They professed faith, but they profaned his covenant. And we said, you can't take, take God's love and reject his lordship. You can't play that game. And that's what's so glorious about this commitment at the end. It's a confession of faith that's matched with a commitment of life. The Lord is our God, and we will walk with him, and we will walk with him even if no one else does. The peoples may walk after their God. Let them do it. But we will walk together after the Lord our God. And we will do that forever and ever. We will never turn away. We will always walk with him. That's part of the future glory that awaits the people of God where we will always walk with him forever and ever, where we will never be unfaithful ever again, where the desire of our heart will be matched with the devotion of our lives. That will be a glorious day. But until that future glory, there's a call here for present grit to make this our commitment when we're surrounded by a world of people who won't. Right? It's, a, it's our future glory, but it calls for present grit to walk in the way of the Lord when no one else will. To walk in the way of the Lord even if no one else is doing it. Even, after they're all, even if they're all walking after their own self-styled gods. To say, no, we will walk after the Lord our God. We should recognize, right, that if, if we're going to try to have that kind of commitment and walk with that kind of grit, we're going to need a persistent grace from our God. There's no way for us to do this in our own strength. But we're going to need the help of our God. And if we're going to walk in this kind of solidarity and strength as the people of God, we're going to need the help of his spirit to walk with him in the face of the whole world. We can't do that in our own strength. We need his grace. And so we should persist in calling out for that grace and the help of our God to live lives that show this kind of confession of faith and this kind of commitment of life. The wisdom and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be agents for God's truth and God's justice and God's righteousness in a world that will not have it. So it's a call for present grit, for persistent grace, and you know there had to be a third one, right? For patient gratitude. 
Because this is not far off the consummate fulfillment. This is not far off. We're living in these last days. Uh, John encourages us to think of us living in the last hour. Paul encourages us to think of the night being far gone and the day being at hand. That this kind of salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Um, We are going to attain this victory. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Son of the Lord has come. The victory has been secured. He's coming again soon in glory. This is a call for patience and a call for gratitude. We're receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. And that kingdom is almost here. We can be patient and hold on for just a little longer. And we can be grateful to know that we don't have to hold on forever. This is the wonderful future that Micah sees. And so let us do what we're told in God's word. Let's be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And may by his grace we make that commitment of present grit that's required of God's people to say, even if all the peoples walk in the name each of its own God, we will walk in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for that picture of the glorious hope that awaits your people. We pray that all here would put their faith and trust in you so that we might enjoy that peace that's coming, that we would not walk after gods of our own making, but walk after our own Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us in this more and more in this present evil age, that we would stand for you in faithfulness against the infidelity of the world, that we might hope for the consummation of the exaltation of your kingdom and the order that's coming when the Son of God rules in power and present with his people. How we look for and long for that day. How thankful we are now to be lifted up into his presence and to commune with that God who sits on the throne. To be reminded of his sacrifice that has set us free from sin, of the fellowship that we enjoy with him as he continues to feed us, and the glory that's coming when he comes again to make all things new. Help us to cling to him and find life in his name. And hear us for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.